Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the People's for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is December 20th, 2022, and our class tonight is going to be on the Counter-Revolution and the USSR. So the class is the Counter-Revolution and the USSR. What we're going to be learning today is we're going to be learning about the history of what led to the 1991 dissolution of the Soviet Union and how it affected the world communist movement. We're going to be reading from the book Socialism Betrayed by Roger Kieran and Thomas Kinney. And we're going to be hearing from comrades who experienced witnessing this counter-revolution, how it affected them and their work. But the main thing we're going to be doing today is reading from Socialism Betrayed and understanding the, uh, the, the meat and potatoes of what happened during the counter-revolution. So we can go ahead and get started on our first section. This is going to be on 1985 to 1986. What's important is that 30 years has since the dissolution, 1991. It's been about 30 years, give or take a year. What's important is that of all the countries of the world, the one that experienced real socialism was the Soviet Union. That should be understood. There's a whole generation that's living now that experienced socialism. The chances for socialism to come back there are greater than any other place on the planet. Think about that. Greater than in Latin America, greater than in Asia, greater than any place else. There's a whole generation, a fifth column, if you want to use that term in a positive way, that lived under socialism, that wants to bring back socialism. The, the Communist Party, the Russian Federation, is the second largest party in the Russian parliament. They reorganized the Komsomol, the pioneers, the pioneers, which is what we used to call the pioneers. They reorganized it about four years ago. They had a meeting, and you'll see young people on this video. These are all new young people. These are new recruits to socialism, comrades. The older people are, are there too. These are people that are active in their communities who bring back socialism. This is important. So when we talk about what happened in 1991, if we get depressed, we should not be depressed. Comrade Marx said it best. There are ebbs and there are flows in the revolutionary process. Like standing on the beach with your feet in the water. The waves come in and then they go out. The waves come in slowly and each time they come, what do they do? They reach more of the land, of the beach and then they go out. The ebbs and flows is what Comrade Marx called it. The, the Paris Commune was 70 days before it was drowned in blood by the anti-socialist forces in, in France. The Soviet Union lasted over 75 years. The next time it'll be 700. We should keep our eyes on what's going on in Russia. Connect this with what's going on in the Ukraine. Very important. And at the end, hopefully I'll give an example. There are communist parties who do not want socialism to come back to the Soviet Union. Why? Why do I make such a claim? Because then the Soviet party will be in the leading role of the world communist movement. Think about that. It was until 91 in the leading role. The Chinese tried to take that away in 1960, they failed. They tried to set up an alternative uh, in Beijing, an alternative center for the world communist movement and it failed. They eventually went in bed with the capitalists. They supported Pinochet. The Maoists supported Pinochet in Chile who overthrew the government and set up a fascist dictatorship. They supported the, the group in Cambodia that eventually they went to war 
against Vietnam. Pol Pot. And that was Pol Pot, yeah. So the point I'm making is something is happening in Russia today. Most of the communist parties don't see it. If you notice the tanks that are going in, how many of them have you noticed have a red flag? A Soviet flag. There's something going on there that's positive. Who called for intervention in order to help the republics of Lugansk and Donetsk? What party? Was it Putin's party? No. It was the party of the communists, Zuganov's party. There's something going on there, comrades, and some of the communist parties in the planet don't see that or they don't want to see that. Because if the Soviets come back, the party in Russia will be number one again. It won't be the party in Greece. It won't be the party in Mexico. It'll be the party in Russia again. And there are groups that don't want that. Gorbachev's first days were electrifying. His speeches and person-to-person talks with workers in Leningrad put firecracks in the ice of stagnation. That was written by Mike, Mike Davidow, who I knew. I knew Mike Davidow, was in the Communist Party USA with me. He was pushing Gorbachev. That's what this paragraph is doing. Gorbachev came in in 85. The first thing he did was go to the United Nations. And I think you should know about this if you want me to lead the class. At the United Nations, Gorbachev said, we have a lot in common with the rest of the world. And he said, there's really nothing to divide us. And I thought that was strange from the head of a workers and peasants state. So a struggle still lies ahead for the party. Khrushchev was not an accident. This is by Molotov saying this. We are primarily a peasant country. And the right wing is powerful. Where's the guarantee to prevent them, meaning the right wing, from getting the upper hand? The, those that are opposed to Stalin, the anti-Stalinists, in all probability will come to power in the near future. And they are most likely to be, what does he say they are? Bukharanites. Very interesting quote from Molotov. Now, the next guy, I, I also knew of him, Yegor Ligachev. He led the opposition to Gorbachev. He was in the Politburo, and he led the opposition to Gorbachev. And I'll read what he wrote. In place of the old corrupt elements that for decades had been festering in the body of the party and society at large. Suddenly, in the space of a year, short time, they became more horrible and more absolutely corrupt that stifled the, health, the healthy start that was made in the party and the country after 1985. Hugo, uh, that's Legachev's statement. The policies of Mikhail Gorbachev occupy the center of any explanation of the collapse of the Soviet socialism. In 1985, Gorbachev took over a country facing long-standing problems and in short order exacerbated the situation into a system-wide crisis. The kindest judgment that could be made of Gorbachev's policies is that they failed. Perestroika did not produce its ostensible ends, a democratic, productive, and efficient socialism. No, instead, it destroyed the Soviet Union as a state and left in its place a set of balkanized countries dominated by oligarchic and lawless capitalism that after a decade had impoverished the majority of the population. Whatever Gorbachev may have hoped to achieve, it was unlikely that he wanted this, nor was it likely he want to become a social uh, a politician without a party, a president without a state, and a socialist without socialism. 
Gorbachev and his defenders said that he inherited a society in crisis. This was false. In any conventional sense, the Soviet Union had not sunk into the throes of a crisis. In 1985, its economic problems did not approach the inflation and instability of Germany in the 1920s or the Depression, the Great Depression, in the United States in the 1930s. Moreover, its political problems fell far short of a crisis of legitimacy. Complaints about shortages, waiting lines, and the quality of consumer goods occurred, but little popular discontent with the system itself existed. Oleg Kalugin, a high-ranking KGB officer who served in Leningrad from 1979 to 1986, said he never encountered serious opposition to the system. As Michael Elman and Vladimir Kontrovich point out, that discontent arose as a product, not a cause, of the reform. Personal consumption of Soviet citizens had increased between 1975 and 1985. Even though the Soviet standard of living reached only one-third to one-fifth of the American level, a general appreciation existed that Soviet citizens enjoyed greater security, lower crime, and a higher cultural and moral level than the citizens in the West did. In March of 1985, when Mikhail Gorbachev became General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, that's what CPSU stands for, he quickly established himself as a leader who was willing to confront problems and undertake bold new initiatives. At first, Gorbachev resumed the course charted by Andropov, that was the previous general secretary. Gorbachev's initiatives met with some success and were enthusiastically greeted at home and abroad, including by the Soviet Communist Party, where in spite of some grumbling that he was either going too far or not, too, or not far enough, no determined opposition arose. Before his first two years were over, Gorbachev began departing from Andropov's style and substance and started adopting policies that resembled Khrushchev's. Addressing the Central Committee for the first time as General Secretary in March 1985 in a speech entitled, Our Course Remains Unchanged, and a second time in April 1985, Gorbachev invoked Andropov's name and slogans. He called for social and economic acceleration, transferring the economy onto the rails of intensive development and quickly attaining the most advanced scientific and technical positions. He also called for strengthening discipline and perfecting the entire management system. Gorbachev advocated the elimination of wage leveling and a swipe at the illegal parts of the second economy and corruption, he called for a struggle against unearned incomes and all phenomena that are alien to the socialist way of life. In foreign policy, Gorbachev reaffirmed such traditional Soviet positions as the support of national liberation, peaceful coexistence, and cooperation with the West on principles of equality. He gave special emphasis on ending the arms race and freezing nuclear arsenals. In politics, Gorbachev proposed strengthening and heightening the leading role of the party, a strict observance of the Leninist style of work, and an elimination of false idealization and formalism in party meetings. Gorbachev spoke of the need for glasnost or greater openness and publicity about the work of the party state, and other public organizations. Yeah, real quick, you know me and the very simple questions. Was Gorbachev always like a, a hidden liberal or did it something that grow out, grew out over time? Just for some clarification, was he kind of a spy? That's it. Thank you. Fidel Castro said clearly that Gorbachev was a Trojan horse. That's Castro. That's what he said. And you know what the Trojan horse was? It was comes into the city. Castro saw him so clearly as an enemy that all Soviet publications were not allowed in Cuba. That's a fact. 
They were not allowed in Cuba anything from the Soviet Union during the Gorbachev years. He also said something that was really interesting. Gorbachev said that there was stagnation. That word, you should be writing it down. That the Soviet economy was stagnated. And that because it was stagnated, we needed new reforms. The word perestroika means restructuring in Russian. They wanted to restructure the economy because Gorbachev said there was stagnation. And this is important. Castro's response is you cannot fix socialism with capitalist tools. Remember that you cannot fix socialism with capitalist tools, which meant anything to do with the market. That's Fidel. And it's in his book that New Outlook published. There's a compilation of Fidel's works. One of them is Socialism or Death. And that's what Castro says in that pamphlet. You'll find it. The CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, came out with a report in 1979. It was carried by the Daily World, which I have a copy of it. The CIA said there is no stagnation in the Soviet economy. It's doing very well. The Central Intelligence was telling the American people, CIA, that there was no economic problems. So don't think there were economic problems in Russia. Gorbachev comes along and he says, oh no, there were economic problems. Therefore we got to restructure. And to answer the second part of your question, Gorbachev was in Czechoslovakia when he was studying. He had a roommate. The roommate was later became the economics minister in the Dubček, Alexander Dubček government in Czechoslovakia. The same government that tried to take Czechoslovakia out of NATO. And the Soviet tanks were called in to help put that down by the workers in the Czech factories. Correction, the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, the Warsaw Pact, right. But the Soviets led it, correct. So I was, I experienced this whole thing. I was very much involved with studying it at the time. So the point I'm making is that, yes, Gorbachev wrote a book in which he said him and his wife, Lisa, uh, I think her name was Riesa, they were but never communists. They were social democrats. So that's the answer to your question. Thank you. This reading pushes back against the common view that Gorbachev inherited a sinking ship. And what it says is that um, what Gorbachev inherited in the Soviet Union was not as bad as the Great Depression here or the uh, Great Depression in Germany. And But my question is, though, like, does it have to be that bad to say that he inherited a bad situation? Like, it seems like a strange argument to me. Well, I just gave you the answer to that. The Central Intelligence Agency came out of a report. There was no bad situation economically. So either you believe the CIA, what it's telling the American people, they wouldn't tell the American government something, I believe, the CIA, if it was going to help Russia and not help the Washington, D.C. Think about that. Uh, yeah, thanks. I just had a brief question. Maybe I missed something. I think it was on the second to last slide. It said that the Soviet standard was from one-fifth to one-third that of the USA standard of living by some measure, and yet they enjoyed some higher morality or culture in some other measure. Is there anyone that could maybe clear that up, what these two different measures are apparently referring to? Thanks. Yeah, I could give you my take on that clearly. Ethically, the Soviets were ahead. I remember I lived there in, in 1976. They were really ahead, much ahead. The Soviet worker made $90 a month, take home. But everything from the transportation to the schools, to the vacation, to the food, everything was subsidized. So they could afford to make only 80 a month because everything was given away free. Their apartments, 
was nothing. They had a phone in the apartment and that was included in the rent. In the West, we pay half of our income for rent. They paid one-tenth. Thank you. I just wanted to say, you know, the era of Brezhnev is always viewed as like one of the most economically prosperous of the Soviet Union. Uh, My question is, after Brezhnev, I think it was somebody else. And then Andropov, what was Andropov like? I can, so very much as discussed, Andropov's perestroika would have been pursued a lot slower then when Gorbachev decided to speed it up and then just go ahead directly with weakening the strength of the party and putting the economy on a market basis. But Andropov even questioned the role of the so-called market in a socialist society and definitely he was more akin to revitalizing in his statements about Leninist theory and definitely firmly sticking by with what came after the Brezhnev period of firm support internationally, especially in inheriting the issue that the Soviet or the assistance that the Soviet Union, the Red Army, was giving to the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan against the U.S.-backed Mujahideen uh, jihadists. I remember the day when the Soviet Union was destroyed by the contra-revolutionary. I was in the Red Army at the time, the Soviet Army, and uh, it was tragic. You know, for me, it was something uh, unusual because... I was, I got education in Soviet Union and I live in a long time and was the time was for me something bad. But I want to say about Soviet Union. See, people don't know about, in the United States, it's a propaganda against Soviet Union. They're talking about a lot of wrong um, because, you know, they want to de- to fight against the communism, socialism. But in the time when I was in Soviet Union, I live in a village. And I was born in the peasant family. And we have a, a small farm at home. We have everything, you know, for for food. Uh, we have a garden. We have a chicken, pigs, calves, and everything, you know. But it was Soviet Union. And they said the propaganda from the United States, they said, oh, no private, private. It's not a private. But everybody had something. And people live outside uh, the city. They have something like gardens too. Nobody starving the time. Every, everything was free, you know. If you go to the university, for example, if you want to... 90 seconds. To pass, to pass the... the, the uh, to university, you need to, to pass the test, not to pay money like today, you know. So it's a lot of uh, good things was in the time. <clears throat> of course, uh, I remember the time how many... During the Gorbachev time, they tried to, to throw away the food from the store. Uh, to make problem, but they don't have problem, but they made problem, you know, they, they bought a lot of meat from the store, from the people, and they throw away outside. So, of course, people say, oh, we have economic problem. The Soviet Union, they don't have, never, but during the garbage of time, they start to, you know, to destroy Soviet Union. So our next part is going to be on the counter-revolution from 1987 to 1986. So now we're moving into the next uh, phase of this. So first, I wanna give a brief excerpt from the introduction to Sam Marcy's book, Perestroika. It says, the objective of the reforms, as it was stated very early in the Gorbachev administration, was to modernize and streamline Soviet economy through the introduction of new management techniques and technology in use elsewhere in the world, particularly in the highly developed imperialist countries. Through perestroika and the political opening known as Glasnost, the new Soviet leadership also promised to tackle social privileges and inequities 
which had accumulated over the years. But as time went on, it became evident that there was much more to the modernization program than restructuring industry and re-equipping the technological infrastructure of the USSR in order to move forward and perfect socialist construction. The enthusiasm that was evoked in the beginning over the expectation that new techniques would lead to an improvement in working conditions, labor pr productivity, and the availability of consumer goods has now, four years into the reforms, this was when it was written, given way to skepticism and even mass anger. The most forceful evidence of this was given by the Soviet coal miners, who showed that they thought of the Gorbachev administration's performance by striking in mass. And no wonder there is such widespread anger among the workers. Instead of perestroika's promised increase in the material well-being of the masses, we have the familiar phenomenon of austerity, so rampant in capitalist society. What emerged is a wholesale retreat from the socialist goals in the area of social and economic relations. The retreat went along with the introduction of private cooperatives, the weakening of central planning, concessions to imperialist investors interested in joint ventures and other openings to the Soviet market, and erratic and ill-disguised steps leading away from collective and state farms and toward the privatization of agriculture. This is what explains the effusive praise for Gorbachev that has come from the imperialist camp, especially from those well-known as arch foes of the labor movement and social progress. When Margaret Thatcher pronounced her verdict, I like him, after Gorbachev's first visit to London, it might have been taken as a judgment by an individual imperialist politician. But since then, the triumphal receptions arranged for him in Washington and Bonn have made it clear policy, have made it clear that the collective opinion of imperialist bourgeoisie heartily welcomes the shift in Soviet policies represented by the Gorbachev leadership. This is in striking contrast to the attitude of the countries oppressed by imperialism, which have been able to muster only the most subdued support for Gorbachev when they haven't been silent altogether. Now we'll go back to socialism betrayed. This is from their uh, fifth part of the book, Turning Point, 87 to 88. In 1987 and 1988, the turning point years of perestroika, the Gorbachev leadership of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union abandoned the reform project of 1985 to 86. In the name of speeding up perestroika and overcoming conservative resistance, Gorbachev and his advisors adopted a new direction at the January 1987 Central Committee Plenum and the 19th Party Conference in June 1988. These new policies objectively undermine the foundations of Soviet socialism. The leadership of the Communist Party, state property, and economic planning, and shattered the unity of the USSR as a multinational federal state. The turning point was not a discrete moment, but an 18-month interval from January 1987 through June 1988, when the radical political reform and radical economic reform policies transformed perestroika from a potentially constructive program into its opposite, a demolition project that destroyed the socialist USSR. In 1987 to 88, the new course took three forms. First, party reform became party liquidation and the exclusion of the party from power. Second, under the banner of Glasnost, the Soviet media became increasingly anti-communist. And third, Gorbachev embraced private entrepreneurial activity. In 1985 and 1986, the Soviet communist press had demanded an end to party abuses. The press railed against corruption, cronyism, patronage, nepotism, bureaucratic departmentalism, protection of the loyal toadies by higher-ups, insufficient cadre training, formalism, complacency, and ideological weakness. Responding to such criticism, the 27th Congress launched a program of party reform. 
The reforms included new party rules to reinforce criticism and self-criticism and a new approach to collective leadership, emphasizing personal accountability. The Congress also called for close supervision of the performance of party leaders. Gorbachev never implemented those reforms. Instead, in 1987 to 88, Gorbachev came to view the CPSU as the main obstacle to perestroika, and he decided to use radical political reform to weaken it. As part of the attack on the party, Gorbachev initiated a de-Stalinization campaign. Twice in early 1987 and 1988, Gorbachev and Yakovlev waged major campaigns to drive the media to revise party history. Khrushchev had pioneered this practice against his party opponents in 1956 and in 1961. Gorbachev gave, this, gave his approval to economic exposés claiming Soviet statistics had been systematically falsified to understate economic failure, and that, quote, Stalin's stagnation was at the root of the crisis, which Gorbachev alleged was far worse than the people realized. Gorbachev used denunciations of Stalin to weaken Ligachev and his allies. In March and April of 1988, a serious confrontation within the party leadership occurred. Participants and commentators both offered widely differing accounts of what happened and its meaning. The variation in existing accounts makes it impossible to construct an exact and fully coherent chronology of events. Still, the basic outlines and significance are beyond dispute. All commentators agree on these elements. First, the approach of the second party conference in June, at which Gorbachev would seek approval of far-reaching political reforms, increased the tensions in the top leadership, and no doubt, precipitated the crisis. Second, the affair began on March 13, 1988, when Soviet Skaya Rossiya published a letter by Nina Andreeva, a chemistry teacher at the Leningrad Soviet Technical Institute, entitled, quote, I cannot renounce my principles. The letter sharply criticized some of the ideological consequences of Glasnost. Third, when the Andreeva crisis ended a month later, Gorbachev had routed and discredited his left-wing opponents on the PV. Hence, the Nina Andreeva crisis con constituted the decisive turning point in the transformation of perestroika from an Andropov-inspired reform effort within the traditional context of Soviet socialism to an open attack on the major pillars of socialism, the Communist Party, socialized property, and central planning. The Gorbachev regime became a transmission belt for the ideas that repudiated the theoretical foundations of Marxism-Leninism. Gorbachev's speeches transmitted such ideas as new thinking, universal human values, bourgeois notions of democracy, and market socialism to the party and the media. Then the Glasnost media expanded on the new ideas, setting the stage for new Gorbachev speeches, embracing further shifts in an anti-socialist direction. In essence, Gorbachev's new thinking amounted to substituting surrender to capitalism for the struggle against it. Substituting surrender for struggle has ideological as well as a political dimension. To stop struggling produces relief. Certain recurrent phrases in the perestroika years evince the opportunist psychology of the Gorbachev circle and its readiness to yield to rewards and pressure. Gorbachev knew that his concessions won him adulation in the West. Gorbachev once exclaimed, we cannot go on living this way. But by any reasonable measure, no unbearable crisis existed. Similarly, Perestroika promised to produce a normal country. In a world where socialism must struggle to survive against the dominant capitalism, which tries to strangle socialism, normality could only mean accommodating to capitalism. The CPSU's leaders in Gorbachev's camp abandoned the notion of socialism as a system that working people consciously build, a desertion they would eventually regard with smug complacency. The links 
to which Gorbachev went to please the U.S., stunned American diplomats. No statesman surrenders a long-held bargaining position unless he gets something equivalent or better in return. How would peaceful coexistence work? Existence did not start with Khrushchev. We were told that. That was a lie. Go back to our classics. It was Lenin who talked about peaceful coexistence. Lenin. Stalin wrote a whole pamphlet, which I had at the office, called Peaceful Coexistence. Stalin wrote that. Khrushchev took the same word and he applied it to his life. The Maoists, the ultra-left, tried to say peaceful coexistence was a bad thing. And they accused Khrushchev, who was anti-Stalin, of doing it. But if you bypass what the Maoists were saying and you go to the uh, our sources, you'll see Lenin wrote a pamphlet and Stalin wrote a pamphlet on peaceful coexistence. They were for peaceful coexistence. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, peaceful coexistence was basically, you could basically consider the friendship that uh, uh, President Roosevelt and the General Secretary Stalin had for each other and the cooperation they had uh, in World War II and had uh, Roosevelt not died or had uh, Vice President Wallace stayed on the ticket and he would have continued Roosevelt's, uh, uh, they would have had true uh, peaceful coexistence based on peaceful coexistence basically people, uh, regardless of what their general ideologies are, agreed to cooperate to make sure that uh, we don't have a, a, another war. Uh, and going back to uh, the, how you measure the economies, how the, the difference in the, in the economy, in Amer American capitalism, the economy is measured by consumer goods. So if you have a brand new car and uh, other consumer goods, a washing machine, uh, you could be considered uh, very wealthy if you uh, have a very high-paying job, even if you don't have any health care, you can be considered, uh, you know, well off. In the Soviet 90 Union, seconds. they didn't need uh, that. The public transportation was far superior. People lived near their employment, and they took public transportation for virtually no money or free. Uh, and uh, bread was five cents when uh, Gorbachev was president, uh, general secretary. And uh, healthcare uh, to the, to the time the Soviet Union uh, was formed was free, completely free. Education was free, no matter where you came from, no matter what your family was, no matter how you, poor you were when you when you grew up. If you're, you're smart, you can wind up going up, become a nuclear engineer, you become a doctor, uh, anything you wanted, free, totally free. Uh, in this country, of course, uh, if you come from a poor family, you wind up in the garment industry, you wind up in the mines. And uh, this is the difference between how you measure the economy in, in consumer goods or how people are treated in, in a healthier way. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, um, how could uh, Gorbachev coming to power have been avoided and also, did the Gorbachev and the other Bukharinists, were they considered like a faction in the party? Gorbachev became the general secretary by one vote. One vote. So he did not get support in the beginning. Uh, I forgot the name of the guy. It was the guy who was during the Khrushchev period, uh, who was in the, uh, the PB who voted for, for Gorbachev. In the background, there really was a struggle, especially during Khrushchev's, the advent of Khrushchev of the, what Stalin called the new Soviet intelligentsia, the upper echelons of the professional class in Soviet society that demanded more special privileges for themselves and espoused a more liberal attitude towards especially the political aspect of society and definitely the economic basis for the, the entre private entrepreneurs, the 
of the second economy laid the economic basis for the further anchoring of these people who, especially Gorbachev, who seek to further liberalize the economy, the political atmosphere, and secure special privileges for themselves. And this, especially of the corruption and the further just lack of ideological training, especially after the where this all began after the Great Patriotic War, where many of the highly theoretically trained cadre were killed off. In 1987 and 1988, I was a student in, uh, in Rezan, the city Rezan is far, it's like four hours from Moscow. So uh, sometimes I visit Moscow and I, you know, I found a lot of, I, I meet some, a lot of different people and on the, in the street Arbat. Arbat is a very long street in Moscow. So I meet a lot of uh, contra-revolutionary, but you know about, because I was far away from the politics. But I meet people from, uh, they call the memorial organization. It was me uh, monarchist groups of democratic uh, union kind of groups again, anti-Soviet. Uh, so these people, they, they, they help to destroy the Soviet Union. And uh, the perestroika, it's really, yeah, perestroika, it's a kind of program was to destroy Soviet Union. And Soviet Union was destroyed, not collapsed. People talking about Soviet was, no, never collapsed. Soviet Union was destroyed by the contra-revolutionary and by the CIA. Thank you. Sorry, the comrade that just uh, mentioned the CIA, what was the CIA's involvement in overthrowing the or starting the counter-revolution. Especially when Gorbachev and his program of glasnost openness, he disabled the jamming equipment that was preventing the broadcasts such as Radio Free Europe or in Radio Liberty, Voice of etc. that were allowing such counter-revolutionary views to continue and especially Gorbachev allowed the abandonment of the Eastern Bloc, especially of the CIA backing Lech Walasa and Solidarity to destroy the, which in, in 89 destroyed socialism in the Polish People's Republic, and so much more, especially with allowing the bourgeois media to further attack socialism and create the poison of capitalist ideas from the broad, from the various institutions we have. Yeah, just real quick, I wanted to uh, emphasize a note that Comrade Angelo had taught us personally a while back. 1.5% growth is not stagnation, people. The USSR had a 1.5% economic growth. Thank you. What made the USSR a federal state? Thank you. 1936, uh, it was the second constitution. Uh, Stalin instituted it. Uh, normally, people will accuse you of like holodomor, uh, uh, denialism or whatever. Really, the famines in the Transcaucasian era, uh, areas and uh, the Ukrainian areas was the reason why federalization occurred. Previous to this, it was more or less like an asymmetrical confederal thing uh, where the uh, socialist states had pretty much a, a good amount of political power and political say, but due to the creation of the Kulak class, them burning up a bunch of uh, wheat, yada, yada, so that they can trade for uh, machinery to the United States to industrialize. The federalization was a mechanism to allow this industrialization to occur more smoothly. Uh, so look at Holodomor less in the sense of this is something we need to defend, and rather, this is a reason that federalization happened. So our final section for tonight is going to be on what we were all getting to with this, which is the 1989 to 1991 period of the counter-revolution. Uh, this is from their Chapter 6, Crisis and Collapse, 89 to 91. During 1989, the worst fears of those who had foreseen the potential of the changes wrought at the 19th Party Conference were realized. 
the working out of those political reforms created a political situation which the party and its leadership could no longer control. From the end of March 1989, the party leadership was reactive, trying to keep up with the changes, which were occurring faster than it could control and propelled by political forces, for the most part outside of that leadership and the party as a whole. That's from uh, Grain Gill. And then another quote from this, the shadow economy has pervaded all economic sectors. That's from Stanislav Menshikov. In 1989 to 91, the final three years of perestroika, after having triumphed over his opponents, Gorbachev remade the Soviet Union in five crucial ways. First, he ended the leading role and monopoly position of the CPSU, changing it to a parliamentary par party. Secondly, he undermined central planning and public ownership. He pushed the CPSU out of economic management while searching for a transition to a market economy. He began privatizing state-owned enterprises and encouraged the burgeoning second economy. Third, he surrendered to the United States on a range of foreign policy issues and eventually saw an outright alliance with imperialism. Fourth, he allowed the glasnost media to remake Soviet ideology and culture. And fifth, always baffled by the national question, he tried repression against Baltic separatists and then flip-flopped to negotiations and an ultimately fruitless search for a new basis for the Union of Republics. Gorbachev was mindful of Khrushchev's overthrow by the party in 1964, and he was bent on making his reforms irreversible by a momentous break with Leninism itself. This took the form of rendering the CPSU powerless, turning it into a kind of advisory strategic planning department for Soviet society and the parliamentary voice of the Soviet working class. He also wanted a multi-party system and a pluralist media and culture. To make the Soviet economy more flexible and dynamic, he demanded a large role for market forces, private ownership, and private initiative. He desired the continuation of the all-union federal state. He wished to see less conflict with the West, and only his last wish came true. Perestroika became catastroika, in quotes, in 1989. What actually happened was three years of mounting chaos from one end of the USSR to the other, ending in the collapse of the Soviet socialism. In 1989, counter-revolution shook Eastern Europe, and a year later, Germany reunited on NATO's terms. At the same time, Gorbachev's worst enemy, Boris Yeltsin, whose career seemed dead and buried when Gorbachev publicly booted him out of the leadership in 1987, made a Lazarus-like political comeback, reborn as a leader of the Democrats. He captured control of the all-important Russian Republic. By early 1990, dual power existed in the USSR, with Yeltsin controlling Russia and Gorbachev the Soviet Union. In 1989, to 91, the economy went from bad to worse. Population declined, shortages multiplied, store shelves emptied, paychecks sometimes failed to materialize, and popular resentment grew. The destruction of East European socialism adversely affected the Soviet economy. The steady withdrawal of the party from the economy proved disastrous. By the summer of 1991, Western analysts spoke of a Soviet depression. Soviet citizens blamed perestroika. Unprecedented mine strikes rocked the regime twice in 1987, or sorry, in 1989 and in 1991. The government sank into debt to the Western banks as one after another, the Soviet, the, the Union Republic declared its sovereignty and then seceded the Soviet Union crumbled as a unitary state. Toward the end, as Gorbachev's position sank into hopelessness, 
he seemed to have trouble distinguishing between the wishes and facts. Some of his aides saw pathological irrationality at work. The lavish praise heaped on him during his foreign trips in 1990 and 1991 diluted him. Chern Cherneyev said Gorbachev's thinking became increasingly filled with circular and unrealistic logic about his real political situation at home. The narcotic of lionization by foreign leaders and journalists was warping his thinking in an increasingly visible way. Nothing was more irrational than the general secretary's pursuit of a new union treaty, whose provisions he ostensibly opposed. Gorbachev bridled at each new draft of the union treaty that, at Yeltsin's insistence, gave a smaller and smaller role to the all-union state. At the end of his tether and confused, he descended into self-deception and political self-destruction. Jerry Ho remarked that history knows no other example of a government with full power over taxation stemming from its own ownership of all property ruining itself by allowing local governmental units under its control to take control of tax revenue. That is what happened from the summer of 1990 to the late summer of 1991. After the 28th Party Congress, from mid-1990 through August 1991, the party imploded. The splintering into factions accelerated. Membership losses, especially among workers, mounted. Dues monies, publication sales, and other sources of party income plummeted. Party finances worsened to near bankruptcy. Financial losses forced staff reductions that further weakened the organization's influence. And the new state body's communist deputies manifested upon disunity. Meanwhile, Democrats pressed for the elimination of the CPSU members from all state and social institutions. After August 1991 and the failure of the August coup and the declaration of the martial law by the Soviet government, the party situation reached the nadir. Anti-CPSU hysteria and Soviet and world media exploded. A drive to outlaw the CPSU and to confiscate its assets emerged and proved unstoppable. The CPSU's fate was sealed. March 1989, Sverdlovsk elected Yeltsin to the USSR Congress of People's Deputies. In March 1990, Russians elected Yeltsin to the RSFSR Congress of People's Deputies. And in May 1990, the Russian Supreme Soviet elected Yeltsin chair. In July 1990, Yeltsin left the CPSU at the 28th Congress. In June 1991, he was elected president of the RSFSR. A new position created in April 1991 by a deal with Gorbachev in which Yeltsin pledged to support Gorbachev's union treaty. With 57% of the vote, Yeltsin defeated five rivals and thereafter held a proven electoral mandate that Gorbachev lacked, an important advantage in the battle for supremacy. Sometime in 1989, Yeltsin's new trajectory had become clear. He planned to play the Russia card and achieve supreme power and capitalist restoration. But why did Yeltsin succeed at becoming the leader of the counter-revolution? In the July 1989 miners' strike, Yeltsin forged an alliance with the most powerful and angry contingent of the working class. In 1989-90, he won support among intellectuals angry at Gorbachev's caution. He seized the banner of radical perestroika, which was overtly capitalist. He grew popular among non-Russian Republican separatists whom he accommodated. He cultivated religious believers. He championed Russian sovereignty and the symbols of Russian nationalism. Above all, he favored a market economy far more decisively than Gorbachev and thereby won over the pro-capitalist elements and the proliferating second economy. Also important was the blossoming support Yeltsin won from Western business, Radio Liberty, and other Western radio voices. 
Counterfactual speculation aside, the August crisis enabled Boris Yeltsin to seize full power in Russia, eliminate the moribund CPSU, and do away with the USSR. That was the real coup. Historian William Odom stated that the SCSE leaders occupied the most powerful posts in the regime when the crisis began. When the August crisis was over, an official with no formal position in the central government had amassed enough power to begin the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Yeltsin was the coup maker, a successful one. On November 6, 1991, Yeltsin banned the CPSU and the CPRF from operating on Russian soil and ordered their dissolution. On December 25, 1991, Gorbachev resigned. On the same day, control over USSR nuclear weapons passed from Gorbachev to Yeltsin. Yeltsin simply took over the Soviet army and security services, renaming them Russian state institutions and retaining most of their personnel. On December 31st, 1991, the USSR formally went out of existence. Nikolai Rizkov called the dissolution the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. The problem was to allow more than one center in the party. Gorbachev set up centers outside the party for his own support. I don't know if you know this. He set up groups in the Latvian countries and in Azerbaijan that were for him. Very similar to what Mao did. Mao set up the Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution and the Red Guards opposed the Communist Party and the Young Communist League. That was his base. So these people did that. They created a faction against the center. In other words, they created another center. Those of us who went through problems in the CPU and the PCUSA know exactly what I'm talking about. You create another center, and that center is your base to attack the leadership of the party and the country. What should the party have done to change what happened with Gorbachev? And did the August coup that was mentioned have anything to do with it? Yes. There was a group called the Emergency Committee. The Emergency Committee of the, of the they were the loyal members of the, the, of the party, led by Ligachev. Ligachev was one of the leaders of that. And they're the ones that led a coup against Gorbachev. It was too little, too late should have been done a long time ago. Just like 2014, if uh, Putin went in to put down the fascist rebellion in the Ukraine, it would have been better. Too little, too late. That's what happened. What was the significance of the parliamentary system being implemented? Why was that advantageous for them? They always had a parliamentary system. Let me explain that. But they had a leading party. It was the Communist Party was the leading party. Lenin said it correctly. Um, They were the cadre party. They led the society. They led the revolution in 1917, and they led the society. What Gorbachev wanted to do is to take them out of the leading role, get rid of the vanguard idea, and so that they would be just another party in the parliament. That's what we mean by that. Uh, Comrade Angelo, specifically because you have the the knowledge, the wisdom, can somebody define on at least that week what factions were what? Like, I know there were tanks, but then there was Yeltsin, and then there was the anti-tank people, and I believe that the communist supporters were in the building. And and can yeah, are there three main factions, and who who kind of was? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there was the Yeltsin group. The Yeltsin group controlled some of the uh, party and the army. There was a group opposed to that that was led by Legachev. And then the people in the building, by the way, the building was called the White House, interestingly enough. That's what it was called, the White House, uh, the same name as our White House here. That building was originally supposed to be, when I was living there, I saw them building it. It was supposed to be the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, Comicon which was the Soviet socialist version 
of the European common market, where all the socialist countries would come together and trade and barter with each other. And that became the, uh, the building of the, of the Soviet, uh, the Supreme Soviet. Thank you, comrade. And I also wanna remind uh, comrades here that we did a class, I believe at the beginning of October on Black October of 1993, uh, which was when the tanks had fired on the, the White House and there was all that stuff with the Supreme Soviet and Yeltsin and how Bill Clinton supported it and everything. Uh, we, had ju we just uploaded that uh, on all of our platforms. So if you're curious on the history of Black October, you can go ahead and go listen to that. Yeah, so it is to my understanding, uh, you look at the DPRK, you look at China, et cetera, et cetera, um, that the Vanguard Party does not outlaw necessarily uh, opposition parties, but rather uh, they, they seemingly just have them remain uh, in par parliamentary government. I was wondering if there are effective ways to which we could prevent them, while despite them having their, their say and <clears throat> essentially their fair representation in this parliamentary process, I was wondering how to defend the revolution properly to avoid a second uh, perestroika, a second glasnost, if you will. Uh, that's all. Every socialist country in Eastern Europe after 1945, the Communist Party led a coalition that was called the Fatherland Front. Every country, Poland, Czechoslovakia, all of them. So the party worked in, in together with the Peasant Party, with the Small Shopkeepers Party. We always had that. In the Soviet Union, it was a little different. So they could have reverted to that idea that they had in the people's democracies of Eastern Europe. Thank you. So as the Soviet Union uh, is dissolved, the KGB and Putin at this time, what was happening to the KGB? Was that just being moved to the Russian Federation or, and then what was Putin doing at this time? How was he kind of aligning himself? Uh, what, was, what was going on at the time? Thank you. Remember, all the KGB took allegiance to the Soviet constitution. Remember that. Once there was no more Soviet Union, they were free. They became freebies. Yeltsin was very influential in grooming uh, Putin. He thought he was going to be able to groom Putin. Putin actually bit the hand that fed him. Putin turned against Yeltsin as history happens many times. One of the things I was asking about DPRK and China and how they have political parties uh, besides just the Communist Party of China or, and the Workers' Party of Korea, just to elaborate further on General Secretary, those other parties work in conjunction with the Communist Party. There's no like opposition party that is operating oppositionally to the government. Correct. That is correct. Historically, looking back, the greatest lesson from the counter-revolution is the repudiating and firmly combating the concept of market socialism, which is really a descendant of the petty bourgeois socialism of Proudhon that was demolished by Karl Marx, and further keeping the principle of the dictatorship of the proletariat in the transition from socialism to communism. Further, in combating the those, the remnants of capitalist society when we are in socialism that seek to, within the party, as with Khrushchev or the new intelligentsia under socialism, seek higher privileges, which was temporarily countered when the workers redressed the balance with under Brezhnev. And last but not least, there is a saying by the communist worker, August Babel, uh, known to Karl Marx, that whenever your adversary, class adversary is praising you, you have to wonder what grand stupidity you have just committed. Then I'm gonna end with the, um 
the position that um, there are forces within the communist movement who don't want to see socialism back again in the Soviet Union. Why do I say that? Because when we had the Soviet party, they were the key party in the world. Everyone gave deference to them because they were the ones who created a, so, a successful revolution for workers and peasants. No other party was able to do it. Think about it. Uh, China did it. That was it. Cuba did it. And that's it. Vietnam never had a revolution for socialism. They had a revolution against imperialist colonial occupation. So it was not a revolution for socialism. So um, there are forces that if the Soviets came back again and they created a Soviet Union, the Soviet Party, they will not be in leadership position in the world communist movement anymore. And I'm specifically talking about the party in Greece and the party in, uh, in the Mexico and some parties like that. So it would not be beneficial for them to have recreate a Soviet Union again. Our party, the PCUSA, is definitely in favor of helping our Soviet comrades bring back Soviet socialism again. I'm telling you, comrades, of all the countries in the world, the rebirth is going to be in the, in the Russia. And that's what's going on now with the Ukraine. It's over that issue. If the Ukraine wins, our hopes to bring back Soviet Union and socialism in Russia are gone. That's why we cannot be with the fascists in Kiev. We have to be with the communists in Russia. Thank you. All right, and thank you, comrades, for coming to the class tonight. Have a good night and have a good new year.